Blog Talk Radio. Archangels, ghosts, and Bigfoot, oh my. It's just another night for supernatural girls. Real stories, real answers to life's biggest supernatural mysteries. And now, for another exciting interview with paranormal experts from this world and others. Here's your host, paranormal researcher Patricia Baker, on the one, the only, Supernatural Girls. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. I am your host, Patricia Baker, and I am here with my dear friend, talented, renowned psychic medium, George Lugo, who is sitting in tonight again. Thank you, George, for Miss PK, who is still recovering at home, and she sends her love to everybody. She was unable to be with us, but once again, George, thanks for stepping up and joining us on the show tonight. Absolutely. Thank you so very much. Appreciate it. Well, it's I'm very grateful. And how are things down in Florida? Oh, beautiful. Right now, absolutely beautiful. We keep dodging those, uh, you know, big old hurricane bullets, you know, and right now it's just sunny, you know, slight breeze. Uh, it's just absolutely fantastic. It's dry. Oh, it's gotcha. not humid. Yeah, it's great. Ocean right, right there. Yes, yeah. I know. You are. It's, well, that's good. That's good. I know uh, PK is still roasting out in Tucson, but we are enjoying gorgeous weather up here in New England. And today is September 18th, and we have got a show for you guys tonight. It is going to be an interesting, fascinating show with our guest. And he is the author of a new book. We're going to bring him on in a few minutes. The name of the book is Morbid Magic, Death, Spirituality, and Culture from Around the World. We've never had a topic like this we've discussed. I know, George, you've been you've talked to a lot of dead people, but this is more on culture and history and spirituality and how people handle death in their culture. So what do you think? We're going to have a great time, aren't we? Absolutely. It's going to be a fantastic time. I've traveled a lot, too, and, and sometimes when I'm in these different areas, uh, I do study a little bit about all these other different ideas about death and everything else. But, yeah, it's interesting, super interesting topic. And this guy seems to know everything, so that's wonderful. He you does. Know, I know. We've, we've got the man tonight. Yeah. And I just wanted to announce a couple things. We have our candles on sale on our website. Don't forget to go grab them. It's a great time of year to get your candles running for any ceremonies that you want to do. We've got all of them, 10 bucks off each. So go ahead and take a look. They are powerful. They are made by... Miss Rascals, who is a bruja, so you know that they have more than just a flame to them. These are real magic. So go take a look. It's on our website, supernaturalgirls.com. Again, we've got great stories on our Facebook page. Make sure you take a look at some of those wild pictures that I've been taking on this portal we have on the property. Georgie and I are going to talk about that a little bit before we go into the show. And also, we have a candle reading and shamanic divination workshop coming up in November. 
It's going to be held on November 16th, which is a Saturday, 11 a.m. to 6. And it's going to be at the Pyramid at Blossom Center in Middlefield. And I, I can't say enough great things about Itzhak. He is a tremendous shaman, and he's agreed to come and work with us for the day. There are about 14 spaces left, so if you're interested, be sure to sign up. And if you're having trouble finding that event on the Facebook page, then just send me an email. You can find me on our website at supernaturalgirls.com. And, George, you've been looking at the photos I've been sending you. So, you know what's happened. It's been strange. I mean, as I I shared with everybody, what happened was um, my husband and I usually don't go anywhere. We're just here all the time, like two old folks. And. (laughs) We decided that we would accept an invitation to dinner with another couple. So we left early, at like quarter to five, and we have cameras all over the property. When I came back, I checked the camera, actually the closest one to the house, and it had taken several pictures, even though nobody was there, and it was clear there was no wildlife that set it off. So when I looked more closely, I saw these faces. Now, at first, I saw one alien face. Then I started seeing another alien face. And then I said, there's something weird going on. And I looked at the next picture, and there were about 10 faces staring at me, all different kinds of faces on this photograph. So I sent them to you, George, because I figured maybe I'm nuts. But then you saw them too, right? You saw those faces. Yeah, they were really easy to, even if you hadn't have told me, I just looked into the circles, and I just saw these faces, you know, and I thought maybe they're elementals or maybe they're alien or whatever they are, there's definitely faces, you know, how you kind of make up things in your mind sometimes when you're looking at something like that, but man, right. these were definitely faces looking back. So, yes, it was very yeah. strange, and so I took, I went out and I took more pictures with just a regular camera to see what would happen, and of course the best time to take those pictures is right at dusk. So that there's that doorway opening anyways. And I got more faces and I got that whole figured guy. Remember him with the mustache? Yeah. He looked kind of like Tesla, but he was standing there. Now he's only, he's shown up in three photos and I haven't seen him since. But what was so weird about it is when I took the photo, I was looking through the camera lens. And usually you don't see anything. You know, when you're looking with your naked eyes through the camera lens, you only see it when you pull it up on your computer. But I saw this guy staring back at me. It, I mean, I saw it as I took the picture. And I was like, oh, my God, you are real. So, anyways, I'm going to keep posting more pictures. They will be on the Supernatural Girls website under Paranormal because when I post them on Facebook, they don't show up well. They're just too small. So, right. go to the website and check it out there you will see i'm going to post some new ones tomorrow and i'm glad george you were able to see what i saw so now i know i don't have to go to the loony bin and that i'm fine okay so that's right you don't have to change your medication or anything so that's great um the uh, that's it. um you know but the, the, the work that you do and you're home all the time and the kind of energy and and, and you're just looking looking hunting you know you're inviting I mean, you created quite a portal on your property there. And so, yeah, it would not be unusual to have things come through for you. Just they know it's open house, you know. So, Well, I think the thing that, 
you know, the work I've done with you through the years is, has been absolutely incredible. And <clears throat> one of these days, I think it would be great if the people that have passed from here to there could just walk through the portal and sit down and have a conversation with their family members, friends, or whomever. And I do believe that's possible. And with the work you and I have done, I think it's going to happen. So this portal keeps opening. I think eventually we're going to see somebody walk through. So I just hope all my security cameras keep up and (laughs) take all the pictures. Yeah. Anyways. Keep looking. I will. I'll keep doing it, and I'll keep posting it so everybody can take part in this adventure. So our guest tonight is a tremendous guest. He is a scholar, really. Tomas Prower, he is a graduate of the University of California, Santa Barbara. He has degrees in global socioeconomics and Latin American studies. He was born and raised in Southern California. He is fluent in English, French, and Spanish, and that gave him the opportunity to work for the French government as a cultural liaison throughout South America with extended assignments in Buenos Aires, Santiago de Chile, and the Amazon jungle. This guy's been everywhere. So since then, he has been the external relations director for the American Red Cross, LGBT plus programs director for entertainment productions in L.A., and a licensed mortuary professional in both California and Nevada. Currently, Tomas resides in his hometown of L.A. as a writer and author of popular fiction and nonfiction works. I mean, God. Tomas, welcome to the show. You're you're so young and you've accomplished so much. We're thrilled to have you with us tonight. Hello. I'm excited to be here. And, yeah, I mean, once, once you hear it all, told back to you it's it's amazing it sounds really exciting <laughs> you are one amazing guy and exciting as well and you brought us a topic as i was saying to george we have never really discussed this topic on here you know it's something we all face and nobody really wants to talk about it but you found a way to write about it that's absolutely incredibly fascinating so i'm not even sure where to start there is so much you took this culture by culture <laughs> But why don't we start with how in the world you got interested in writing about this? Um, I've always been a little fascinated by it. I mean, when I was super young, it was kind of like the golden age of horror and media. It was when Tim Burton was at his creative peak. Silence of the Lambs was, you know, sweeping the Oscars. There were kind of subversive, dark cartoons for us kids to grow up on. So I think it kind of just absorbed in me. But then it really started to happen all when you know, I became working in the mortuary industry and it was, it was fascinating, just fascinating because I, I live in Los Angeles. That's where I grew up. And there's God knows how many people here, but all throughout my life, you never see death. I never understood it. I mean, yeah, you see, you know, when a relative dies or someone passes away, but there's millions and millions of people here yet. No one sees death. It's invisible. And it was fascinating hmm. to see this underground, behind-the-scenes world of what happens in a mega city when people start dying. And because no one has any experience with it, no one understands how to deal with it. So, you know, as just that's, working in the industry yeah, and trying to help families, I was really trying to just, how can I help the families? Maybe, there's, maybe another culture does something that I can kind of use as like a trick of the trade. 
But then mm-hmm. that just became even more fascinating. I'm like, oh, this, the world needs to know about this. This is this is real something right here, and that was the genesis. <laughs> That's incredible. Now you talk about how in our culture, United States and LA certainly fits into that in its own special way. That we we do things that are a bit strange. Um, the way you wrote about it, I was thinking, you know, we're kind of weird the way we do this. Like you talk about, you know, making sure the eyes are glued shut and the face looks all made up and perfect. And, and you know, it's you really hit the nail on the head with your description. It, it's true because when you think of a traditional funeral, you think of either, you know, the viewing in the casket or possibly a cremation. And, you know, we've think that that's how it's always been done. That is, you know, quote unquote tradition, but it's not really how it's been. And it's this weird, modern, odd thing where you take this, the reality of death and to shield everyone from knowing death exists, you make this body look like it's sleeping. But in order to do that, you have to do a bunch of magic stage lighting, special effects makeup on this corpse, dress it a certain way, position it a certain way, you know, sew things on the inside shut, use plaster of Paris to recreate things. And it's this whole weird, bizarre setup that is essentially just denial of death so that we can see someone who has died but not really have to see what death looks like. And that's not tradition, you know. Humans have not been doing that dance for millennia. And that's, it's very odd and it's very modern. It really is. And I have to tell you that I will never forget when my mother-in-law passed away and I went to look at her in the casket and she looked friggin' gorgeous. I mean, I was, <laughs> she was 86, you know, and I, I had turned to the mortuary director and said, how did you make her look like this? I mean, I know people who are like, can't look this good. You know, <laughs> what are you doing? And he just laughed. But, I mean, I really, I wanted to know because it was like a magic trick to make make her look like that. And I'm sure you've done it over and over again as a, in, you know, working in the mortuary. But how do you do it? Is my question to you. How does this happen where the person looks so much better than they did when they were alive? Um. The easiest thing is that it, it, it's the same thing that photographers use. It's the same thing that, you know, entertainment industry people use. You look at someone on a Hollywood on the screen in a movie theater, they don't look like that in real life. You know, Kim Kardashian, all of them don't look like that every day without their makeup. We just do the same mm-hmm. thing, but we have special techniques that we use, and it's a, it's a lot more like stage makeup than it is, um, you know, your everyday Maybelline. And you just use it, and, of course, the person's not fighting back. It's not telling us, don't put rouge here, don't do that to my face. So (laughs) we really have free reign to be ultra-professionals and essentially create this piece of art with a bunch of stage makeup. And, of course, if you use, like, a funeral chapel and we have those rose lights, which bring out the, you know, the inner, quote-unquote, blood, so it looks like there's blushing, the blush of life there happening. And the way Mm -hmm. it's staged, we always put the left hand over the right to show, you know, the wedding mm-hmm. ring, or he's tilted a little bit to the right, so it looks like it's looking out in the audience. It's all these different illusionist tricks that you use. And mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's a whole conversation unto itself, but it's that world in itself is fascinating, what goes on behind mortuary doors. But I will say that um, if everyone knew exactly what embalming was, I don't think anyone would do it. And really? Why is that? I mean, 
it's so unnatural. It's pumping your body with all these extremely toxic chemicals that are super carcinogenic. In fact, if you, as mortuary professionals, we have to wear layers of protective gear just to touch the body after it's embalmed. It's more dangerous to touch an embalmed body than it is a body that died naturally. And really? Super oh, my God. And it doesn't last huh. forever. In fact, yeah, there's, there's, if you go back to Europe, especially in Ireland, I think there's this, there's these cemeteries, you know, ancient cemeteries when embalming was just starting, and the whole ground is toxic now, because decomposition does happen regardless. Embalming doesn't last forever, and you leak, you leak out back into nature essentially. But now, rather than leaking organic body fluids, you're, it's this cocktail of chemicals that's poisoning the ground. Worse still, if you look into zoning laws around the world, especially in the United States, people put cemeteries in, you know, whatever land. You know, oh, it's just mm-hmm. supposed to be buried in there. That's it. We can put them anywhere. So there are over water supplies, near rivers. No one really looks at the ecological consequences of where to place and zone a cemetery, which leads to the chemical leaking. And it's, oh, it's a, it's a whole mess. Plus, you have to get your blood drained, and it all goes down in the sewer. It's it's this whole it's a whole mess. But you know, you know I'm you surprised like it's sleeping, even legal so. when you describe it like this. It sounds just absolutely horrible. It, exactly, and that's the big thing. You know, to circle back, no one talks about death in society, and so they want to. They right. don't want to talk about it. It's uncomfortable, <laughs> and so. All these laws and all these things can get slipped by because no one wants to pay attention. No one wants to talk about it. So the funeral industry, we can kind of do what we want because we know no one's going to look into it. Or if they do, not enough people will do it to, you know, make some noise. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is so enlightening, Tomas. I've never (laughs) thought about any of this this way. And you're bringing us a whole new perspective on this. It's great. Now, there are some religious I'm sorry, George, what did you say? I was just going to ask him what would be your choice. Tomas, your choice when you pass away. Are you going to be embalmed or are you going to be cremated or what are you going to do? I absolutely would not be embalmed, period. Um, I would like a natural burial, which is what we call, you know, just being stuck in a hole in the ground and decomposing, but you know right. that's even tricky nowadays because cemeteries have you put in caskets so that the lawn doesn't settle, so that they can mow it more easily and create more profits to save money. So I would like to look out at the Joshua Tree Natural Natural National Forest, oh, yeah. and yeah, and then just get you know whole body cover up, boom, go back to nature naturally. That. That's really as ecological as you can get, and that's that's what I would like. Well, yeah. oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's much better. But there are some religions that forbid being embalmed, like the Jewish religion, right? So in Jewish cemeteries, there's no embalming that goes on for these. Right. Bodies, I mean, right? The, it's true in the Jewish faith. There's the, the big difference is that the, the body is extremely sacred. You know, it is a gift from God. So in or, all the embalming process, you have to be cut up and spliced and have your blood drained and have, you know, maybe some organs separated. And you can't do that, you know, by religious law. That's not right. That's not good for you. It's disrespectful towards God. So you have to remain intact, which means 
embalming's out of the question, and usually cremation's out of the question too. But it's 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 a whole new world of Jewish law. I mean, when the medical legal society considers you dead here, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that in Jewish law you're considered dead. So you can be both alive in the Jewish faith and technically dead according to the hospital at the same time, which makes organ mm-hmm. transplants tricky subjects. And do you cut yourself up to harvest those organs because that's against God's will? And there's a lot of fighting in the Jewish faith about that. But yeah, in, in Judaism, your body is supremely sacred, and it needs to be as complete as possible and buried in the ground um, so that when, you know, the Messiah comes, everyone can kind of, you know, rise from the grave and live that glorious next life. If you're cremated, mm-hmm. you don't have a body to do that. And if you're in pieces around the world, you're not going to have a body to do that. Oh, interesting. So it's, it's a different world. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I mean, so how do you feel about uh, organ donation and all of that? I mean, what's your personal thought on it? I think it's fine. I like it, and I highly support it. I understand why people don't do it. It's usually because of that. If you, The faiths who don't participate in it is because the body needs to be intact and whole. Me, with mm-hmm. my spirituality, I'm, you know, you've seen from the book, I'm pretty eclectic. Um, I kind of think yeah. everything is true and nothing is true at the same time. And mm-hmm. so it's, I think it's great. I think it's very helpful. Um, and even when you have, even if you do have your organs harvested and transplanted afterwards, um, us mortuary professionals, we're trained on how to make it look like that never happened. I mean, we have people who mm-hmm. donate their entire skin to people and what? we can make them look oh as if they, that never happened. Harvest bone, <gasps> harvest anything. Yeah, and wow. you, again, you would never know. You would never know. So there's no real consequence um, visually if you're thinking about that. But I'm all for organ donation. Absolutely. Mhm. Mhm. Oh, my goodness. So many things that you've come in contact with here in the cultural sense. So you've taken a walk through this book and through your travels to many different cultures. Now, you talk about the Mexican culture. The, and tell us about that. Tell us about oh, how... Oh, yes. I know that, that one culture. very intimately. Okay. Um, I'm Let's actually despite looking like the Lucky Charms leprechaun, like I'm straight out of Dublin, if you've seen me. Um, I'm actually half Mexican. <laughs> so, you know, I, I grew up in that culture, and I, I, I know it well. But it's it's the most fascinating thing about it is you're kind of exposed to death at an early age, most famously with, you know, the Dia de Muertos um, ceremonies that happen. But, and that's the big disconnect is a lot of people look at the Mexican culture and they think, ooh, it's so, it's so creepy. They're going to the cemeteries. Oh, they're dressing like skeletons. Oh, they're worshiping the dead. But in mm-hmm. general, you know, the Mexican society has a, a lot smaller or less of a fear of death because, we don't hide it away as some like boogeyman creature that's going to get you someday, but you don't know what it looks like because it's hidden from society. No, we go to the cemeteries. We talk with grandma and grandpa. We know there are spirits around. Um, we celebrate it as a natural part of life and it's not as scary. And it takes that kind of fear away. And then all the existential crises that result because of it when death actually happens. So it's a lot more death positive and death friendly because it's part of the culture. It's it's normal. Well, it makes sense. I mean, it's something that we all are going to do, uh, whether we want to or not, whether we're ready or not. It's, it's just going to happen to all of us. 
But you're right. This Our culture here in the United States tends to just ignore it. But it does look a little strange from the outside in to this particular culture. And, you know, the Day of the Dead, some of these ceremonies, it's hard for us to grasp the meaning of it. It, it is. It is. I mean, whenever you're looking at something from another culture, you'll always look at it with a foreigner's eye. You know, like in Los Angeles, yes. I'll always look Hollywood differently than everyone else who didn't grow up here. And I can never see it from the outsider's eye, and the outsider can never really see it from the native eye. So there'll always be a little disconnect. But the biggest thing is it's it's essentially Catholic in nature, with the Vida mm-hmm. de los Muertos ceremony. It's, it's kind of All Souls Day, wherein... You know, in, in Catholic culture, you have every day of the day dedicated to some saint. But what about all the other dead people who died? And there's only 365 days in a year. There's more saints and dead people than that. So here's this one day at the end of October, early November, when everyone who has died gets celebrated and has their own special holiday. And that's Vida mm-hmm. Los Muertos. It's just the Day of the Dead, celebrating those who have passed on. If you've seen Coco, that explains it fantastically. Um, it's it's just not forgetting people who have come before you and making sure those connections, especially in large, you know, Mexican Catholic families when family is everything, um, mm-hmm. that those connections aren't severed. And we can trace our lineages back and know people, talk about grandma and grandpa as if they're still here. And we do talk to them, especially at the cemetery, because they are still there. Maybe not underground, but, you know, ethereally. And it, it's it's a magical well, world. Yes. You just have to live it to see it. And, I remember some George, of the families in L.A. have these huge altars in their house with all the little effigies of you know the skeletons and musicians and and all of that. It's pretty amazing. And uh, they're like active altars in some of the families there. And I totally respect that, you know. And they're really fantastic to see. Extremely colorful. And uh, you know, I thought that was pretty neat. Oh yeah, we go we go all out because you know when, when you love grandpa, you show you love grandpa. You don't just put up some quick thing and just oh I'm done. I did my work. You know you have to show the love. So they're they're usually very well done. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And the food. Yeah. Great. Oh my God, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the way you explain it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, the celebration of everyone who has passed it sounds wonderful. Actually, it's just. The visual of it, from what I've seen uh, in the media, is totally different, and I get a different feel from it. But what you just explained, it just it just all got very grounded, which is nice. So thank you for that explanation. And you're the second person to mention that movie, Coco. I, was, I know <laughs> Katrina Rasfold is, is doing a, a course on Bohemia, and she recommended that movie. Now you recommended that movie. Now I'm going to have to see it. So this is good. This is all good because I'm I'm learning so much. I know George, you are somebody who talks to the dead, so so you're very aware of of a lot of this, um, a lot of what we're talking about tonight. Because people, you know, don't really disappear forever; they just cross over to another dimension. Yeah, so, all of this, yeah. yeah, so you're comfortable with all of this. We I know. survive death, you know, with our consciousness. You know, we we survive it. So let's talk about some of the other cultures, because they're all fascinating, and you covered (laughs) a lot of ground in that beautiful book. 
So is there anyone that is your favorite? Um, I know the one that's everyone's favorite whom I talk to about the book. It's the first question people ask me. It's the thing I get messaged about, and everyone's like, is this real? Do they really do that? But why? Why? You know, and, and, it's, and I'm just like, okay, let me explain. Let me explain. And the biggest one that, like, really shocks people that, honest to God, happens are um, funeral strippers. And it's huh. mostly in, yeah, yeah, funeral strippers. It's mostly in East Asia, um, China, and particularly Taiwan. And But before I explain it, I have to set up the culture for it. It's usually in very um, kind of Confucian-like families where familial piety and, you know, honoring mom and dad and the family is the utmost important. You know, the whole is mm-hmm. everything. The individual is nothing. And so when someone passes on, you have to show great amount of honor to that person, great amount of respect. And one major way you can do that is at the funeral, how many people show up. If a lot of people show up, it kind of shows to the universe, this was a special man. This was a woman who was loved by society. And they get all this, like, extra honor and praise and just really helps them. But, you know, if you're an average person, you get an average amount of people coming to your funeral, you get an average amount of honor that comes to your family. So what people have figured out is that sex sells. And so if you have a funeral and you hire a couple of rippers, set up a couple (laughs) of poles, set up a fog machine, set up some lasers, and you have a party (laughs) that the entire town is going to, and all those people are there for the funeral. Oh, God, yeah. And then it just shows all these people are here, you know, for mom or dad's funeral. All this honor gets bestowed upon them, and you fulfilled your familial piety duty to mom and dad at their last moment. And it's it's who it's huge. Oh my god! Oh my god! It's it's so huge. Politicians are doing it. The Chinese government has a special tip hotline you can call if you see that activity happening. A special funeral stripper hotline to call um, to report that because they see it as you know bourgeois decadence. You know it's worship of the dead, um, very waste of money which is especially hard because the areas of China and Taiwan that are doing this are the very rural areas. You don't oh see that goodness. much, you know, Shanghai, Beijing, but in the very rural areas where people don't have money. So it's causing an economic crisis because you have all these people who are successfully showing their familial piety, but they're going into severe, severe debt to do it. And they become bankrupt, and the town starts becoming bankrupt, and, you know, the central government has to be involved, and it's no longer productive. So, and it's all because, you know, you want to show mom and dad respect, get a lot of people in. A lot of people don't care about mom and dad, but they care about the strippers that are gyrating next to the casket. (laughs) And, boom, you have a new tradition that's sweeping the nation. So that's it. Oh, my God. There's so much stuff out there. How long has this been going on? I guess I have lead such a sheltered life. Um, how long is going on? This particular tradition. The the specific answer is that it it has been going on too long. I would say since probably around the nineties is when it's really kind of had its roots of starting okay. as an actual funeral strippers. But it's ha- it uh-huh. has its origins in funeral whalers where you would pay women in society from the village to be overly dramatic and scream and wail and tear their hair out at a funeral to show how much this person was loved. So it kind uh-huh. of just evolved from if we pay all these women to 
be super emotional at mom and dad's funeral, that shows respect. But what if we get a bunch of people? It's the it's the 21st century answer to you know funeral whalers. So it <laughs> it has its roots in history. It's just the modern version of it. <laughs> now, come on. Oh, have, you, to be honest, have you guys ever tried a funeral cookie? Do you remember this? Have I ever done a funeral home involved with this? Yeah, no. Have you ever gone to a funeral where they served um, funeral cookies? This is kind of a Victorian thing. And they what they would do is it wasn't unusual to keep the family member in the kitchen who's passed away. And while they're in there, the day that people would come to pay their respects in your home, what they would do is they would scrape the arm or scrape the leg and get cells off the, the body and blend it in with the batter and then make oh. these funeral cookies. And sometimes they put a stamp on them. It would be like either the, uh, the family crest or it might be a crucifix stamped on it or something of that nature. And then as you walked into the house, they would give you a cookie. And it had the cells of that body in it. Did you ever try oh, that? Oh, man. You um, if I did, I wasn't aware of it. But, <laughs> um not, not I didn't or knowingly try any cookies like that, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. I would not be surprised. Oh God, I am turning down all cookies this year. Oh my goodness me. That just sounds so disgusting. Gee, George, thanks for sharing. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, let's move on. <laughs> To some of the deities and gods and goddesses that you talk about in the book that have to do with death. Now, you talk about Lilith. I think she got such a bad rap, but what what did you have to say about Lilith? Talk to our audience, because Lilith is a quite controversial figure. Lilith is very controversial. She's either like the female embodiment of all evil, or she is just, you know, this misunderstood badass woman who's trying to make her place in a man's world. You know, and right. The, but it all goes back to essentially like the Adam and Eve story. Um, supposedly, in the Lilith story, Lilith was Adam's actual first wife, but she was kind of independent and her own woman, and Adam kind of didn't like that because he was being either you know dominated by or equal to this other creature in Eden, and so you know she was kind of cast aside, and they created something from Adam, you know, from his rib, and created Eve, this person who was more subordinate, you know, the quote-unquote perfect female, obedient, submissive person who would obey Adam. And, you know, Lilith is out of Eden, and she's upset, and she, you know, supposedly makes deals with the devil according to different rumors and tries to kill babies because of it and is trying to enact this revenge. But in other stories, she, like, kind of, like, beats her way back into Eden to confront Adam and, you know, essentially beats Adam, but then gets beaten back out of Eden. And all this time, Eve is looking at this like, wow, this horrible monster person, Lilith, that, you know, my husband was talking about, she wasn't a monster. She looks just like me. Maybe I have that power within me. And so she kind of goes as like this warning sign of, you know, don't be a bad, loose woman. Don't be in control of yourself. You'll end up evil like Lilith. And, you know, she derived from ancient Mesopotamian, the Dark Maiden, Lilith's Jewish Jewish mythology, mostly arose like in the Middle Ages when she became maligned with acts of rebellion, you know, being sexually assertive. 
and refusal to be submissive. But and so how the, and how do you tie yeah. tie this into the whole concept of the death culture and the death experience? How does she fit into that? She fits into it because a lot of, especially like in the Middle Ages um, in Jewish mysticism, she kind of became the cause, or at least the supposed cause, of the reason of why a lot of children were dying. You know, mm-hmm. back back then, child mortality rate was much higher. You know, having a baby survive right. was kind of like, mm, maybe it'll survive, maybe not. <laughs> um, so when you have a child that dies, especially an infant, no one understood why, why there were so many child deaths. And so it was understood that Lilith, who's this person, and we're all, you know, quote-unquote descendants of Adam and Eve, the first, you know, man and woman to walk the earth. So obviously this is Eve taking revenge on the children of Adam and Eve and trying to kill them and take them. I guess it's kind of like, you know, when you're like the ex-girlfriend and, you know, your boyfriend gets married to someone else and you kind Mm -hmm. of just want to like, it bothers you and you just kind of want to like take it out on them. And so you do by attacking the children and killing them. So Lilith was kind of... She also had her own children killed, I think, too, right? Because that's part of the mythology of this, that her children were killed and so her so angry that she went after other people's children. So it's a vengeful revenge thing. But yeah, so it's just an it's an interesting mythology and I I was I was curious as to why you added that to the book, but now I understand it. So it's it's all about taking the children and all of that. And where do oh, you yeah. stand oh, yeah. with, with Lilith? Yeah. Very interesting. You know, in I'm sure you've seen a television show, Lucifer and it was interesting Last uh, last season of it, which went to Netflix, they brought Eve into the show. It was fascinating, and oh. they worked it in a really good way. Yeah, you might want if you haven't seen it. I do recommend it. It's a very good, very good series. And so they did work that in that she came back looking for Lucifer, who was on on Earth now. So, but the whole mythology around all of this, it's all fascinating, and so. Again, let's go back to the to the deities. Is there anyone else that you thought was fascinating as you were writing about them? Um, kind of. I mean, the honest truth is when you're writing about, when I'm actually like, you know, at the laptop writing, the deity I'm writing about is the most fascinating one at that moment. You know, you're like, oh, you're mm-hmm. all into it. You're all into the research. But my, my particular favorite is always, you know, if we go back to Mexican culture, is La Santa Muerte. And uh, I just I just find her fascinating. I find her amazing. I find her helpful in spiritual practice. And she's just this malign creature deity that's malign for a good reason, but also kind of misunderstood because, you know, sensationalism sells, and if it bleeds, it leads in the media. So, right. so tell yeah, us about from, Yeah, if okay. you're not familiar with her, it's essentially... Um, the the classic image of the Grim Reaper, you know, black cloak, sight, skeletal figure, and essentially worshiping that, except imagining it as a female. So this female Grim Reaper is La Santa Muerte, which is Spanish for the Holy Death. And she kind of watches over everyone who's been maligned by society, outcast, anyone who's not, you know, on the in in society. So a lot of her followers are just simple people trying to survive in an economic world that they can't
and not, you know, the poor, the people who have different religious beliefs than Catholic Mexico. But she also has a lot of people who are, you know, drug dealers and professional assassins. Because when you pray to death, yeah, and, and, and it's true. I mean, those stories are true because when you pray to death, and this is why everyone is so in love and fascinated with her, death, death doesn't judge. At its core, death doesn't judge. You could be a good person, you could be old, you could be young, you could be bad, rich, poor. Death's coming for you at any time. It, it mm-hmm. has no preferences. So when you right. work with death as this spiritual entity, it's not going to judge you. Do you want to pray for a million dollars? Is that selfish? Who cares? That's not going to judge. Do you want to get revenge on your ex? Who cares? That's not going to judge. Do you want to kill someone and transport drugs across state lines? Who cares? That's not going to judge. And especially in Catholic Mexican society, you really only have God and the Virgin Mary. And if you pray to the Virgin Mary and be like, you know, Mary, I really need to murder this person today. You know, you just instinctively know in your heart that she's not going to help grant that petition. You know God is not going to help you with that drug deal. So right. a lot of people who have nowhere to, go, nowhere to go, they know that death is not going to judge. And so she's become this dark-sided Our Lady of Guadalupe cult where you can go to her for anything. But again, it could just be people trying to survive. It could be, you know a prostitute who has no way to earn an income in society, and she's like, you know, I, Santa Marte, I need help. I need a couple Johns tonight to put bread on the table. Nothing else I can do. I need your help. God's not going to help me. Mary's not going to help me with this. I need your help. So she's really the down-and-out saint for both supreme evil and just the That's people who need it most. Just fascinating. Now, with La Santa Muerte, I, I just I want to know, too, you started in your book with a kind of a scary story about a gentleman who did pray to her, and <laughs> something didn't yeah. quite work out. You want to share that story? <laughs> yes, I actually forgot about that. And um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm laughing right now, but it's, it's a serious story. It's a serious story. Um, the you know, the long and short of it is that um, I, my, the first book I read, read, wrote through Llewellyn was a book on La Santa Muerte. You know, her, it's an English explanation to people who don't speak Spanish or aren't in Mexican culture that they can understand it. And, you know, it, it, that sold really well. It's still selling well, and it's getting this international attention because she's so popular. Well, there's this publishing house in Poland, and this guy contacted us and did trying to get the translation rights. Perfect. So I helped out. I don't speak Polish, but, you know, I, I could help answer a few things. And I became friends with this liaison with the Polish publishing house. And he was fantastic. We became friends. The book came out. We were all happy. And then his life got into all these, well, problems. He, he just he wanted help. And he had been working on this Santa Muerte book for a long time, so he was fascinated with it. I never really previously worked with her, but was just fascinated with her. So he's like, oh, I'm in dire straits. I need this badass, you know, deity to come help me out. No matter what I need to do, let's get it done. I was like, mm, don't go to Santa Muerte for this. Do you, is, is mm-hmm. there a reason you specifically need to go to death to help you with this problem? And he's like, yes, yes, yes. You know, and when you're really caught up in something, there's no talking you out of it. And right did, and he, he was, essentially he was having trouble with his um, wife of many, many, many years, 
and he prayed to Santa Muerte, did all the rituals, and he got his wish. And what what death does in a magical sense is that it doesn't give you stuff. It kind of creation leads through destruction. So it destroys all the illusions in his life and brings the wall come tumbling down, you know, essentially the tower card in the tarot, so that you can rebuild that new life you've always wanted. But when your house has fallen down around you, it's hard. He realized that his wife never loved him, was essentially a gold digger, just married after him for his money, had the secret lover the whole time, and now she was running Uh-oh. off with him. She's getting a divorce. Uh-oh. She didn't have his money. He was unhappy in life. He didn't like his work anymore. I mean, everything went, you know, terribly, terribly. And he's like, uh-huh. why did this happen? Why? And I'm like, you got exactly what you wanted. Now you know what's happening. Now you can start a new relationship. And go on. He couldn't get through it. Couldn't get through uh, it. And I remember one, yeah, one that December, um, um, his wife, his wife of all people, I know, contacted me and was like, "Thank you for helping the book. Um, there'll be no more communication with him because he actually he took his own life." And oh I was my just God. like, oh. "It what? It, it hits you. It always hits you. And it comes out in all these cliches because <laughs> death is just." profound experience that you have nothing else to do but say what's already been said. And right. Then, but it wasn't surprising. And I was just like, you see what happens? And it's and I put it in the book because it is a warning sign. People get this book, oh, I'm going to do all this magic with death. And it's like, hold up, hold up. Yeah. One, do you really right. need death's help with this? Do you know what you're getting into and are you prepared for the consequences? If you say yes, hey, it'll be a lot of fun. Join the ride, but don't say I didn't tell you. So it, yeah, mm-hmm. there's got to be a big warning yeah. with that. Yeah, because the way you describe it again, it makes perfect sense. What death is doing is destroying your illusions about life. So whatever you think uh, is, is happening and isn't, you're going to get it smacked in, in front of you. You just can't ignore it anymore. It's going to just show it to you. So that poor guy, it sounds like he had one illusion blasted after another and then felt that he had nowhere to go. How sad. Oh, my goodness. But you warned him. I mean, you know, you, you try. And then after after the fact, you wonder, should I have warned him more? Should I have told him less? Should he have been involved in a project? You know, all these questions that don't have answers. And if they do, do they help? And yeah, so right. it it was just, it was a weird hit home personal experience with, this essentially deity that I helped popularize and I have a connection with. It was, it was bizarre. It was so bizarre, but you know, it's, it's one of those things, you know, you, you got to know what you're dealing with. So that story's in the book too. So here's my next question. Do you have any stories that when somebody did this magic with La Santa Muerte, that it worked out, a little differently. <laughs> you have any more positive stories to share about that? I do. I have I have a lot more positive stories than I have negative stories. But that's and that's why I'd be sure to say the negative story because when you hear all these things that are happening, you have to remember mm, it's not a fail-proof plan. But right. God, right. There are so many things happening. I remember. Um, I think my own story with La Santa Muerte and magic is my favorite one to tell. Because, you know, I'm a little biased for it, but it's, um, I remember when I I was traveling the world and doing all this stuff, I always wanted to, like, write, but I didn't know what to write about. You know, I didn't have that grand, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald story to define my generation and do it. And if I was going to do something, I'm kind of go big or go home. 
I don't want to write something mm-hmm. that's just going to end up in the airport shelves. So <laughs> and I, and I never knew what, yeah, I never knew what to write. And I kept putting it off and just didn't know what to do. And then I, the whole story of how I encountered La Santa Muerte and got involved in that. And once I become really, you know, friendly with her and working with her, I, I sat down and asked her, look, this is one thing I want. And when you ask something of La Santa Muerte, why it is so dangerous and why it is so effective is because you're, essentially your petition is always granted. You always get it because wow. there's no safety. Wow. Yeah, there's that, there's that saying of, okay. <laughs> there's that saying of, um, you know, unanswered prayers are a blessing. And mm-hmm. maybe that is your prayer being answered. That doesn't happen with La Santa Muerte. If what you want is going to oh. end up biting you back in the ass, you know, oh, well, oh, well. <laughs> S-O-L, you got it, you wanted it, deal with it. So there's no safety wow. valve in dealing with her. So you get what you want, but is it really going to help you? And so I was like, I do want this. I knew I wanted this. This, you know, I wanted it for a long time. I'm like, I want to write a book and I want to make it big. And so... I, I sent out all these stories. I was writing all these stories, and I, I said, let me, as an act of honor to her, let me put La Santa Muerte Weaver in this story. Submitted to Llewellyn, and it was a fiction book. And Llewellyn came back and said, actually, we don't do fiction, but right. we've been looking for someone to write about La Santa Muerte for a long time, and we heard you had that in the book. We'll give you a contract if you want to write a nonfiction book about her. And I was like, and I, you know, you're, you're in the room looking at the email, looking back at the statue of Santa Muerte, looking back at the email, and just like, uh-huh, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Wow. And so in a way, that prayer was answered. Did I? Did the walls of I absolutely have to make it writing fiction happen? No. But I got it. I got it through the destruction of just let the ego go. You don't have to control the pace of where your future is going to lie. Just just take the opportunity and go. Here it is. And hey, it's about me. So, you know, my <laughs> mother turned debt to her. Yeah, and so I got to I got to help her out. Is that that you know, high five payback? You know, hey, this is this is for you. Wrote it. Now more people will know and be involved with you. And hey, it's a win win situation. So it's 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 more good than bad. But it's you got to be aware that it can go bad. Yes. This is fascinating. My God, I don't think I've ever learned so much on the show. This is great, Tomas. Now, we're going to take a very short commercial break, come back, and we have so much more to talk about. But, everybody, you've got to get this book because it's a great book. Morbid Magic, Death, Spirituality, and Culture from Around the World. It is written beautifully by our guest tonight, Tomas Prower. And we got to come back and keep talking. So stay tuned, everybody. We will be right back. Pure essential oil, specialized minerals, and a revolutionary anti-aging technology. Astridian combines the best of all scientifically proven ingredients in easy-to-use creams, lotions, and concentrated serums. Astridian's advanced line of products take your skin to a new level of being healthy and beautiful. We offer a variety of collections that address all your skin concerns. The Essential Anti-Aging Series treats and moisturizes your skin for a long-lasting, younger look. The Multivitamin Series promotes healthy skin with high-quality vitamins and minerals. The Sports Series restores skin from cellular damage and stress. 
Estridian also offers a revitalizing solution for hair and a professional series for doctors and medical spas. Visit estridian.love today and begin your new journey to healthy, beautiful, youthful skin. Estridian, beyond your expectations. Are you ready for a new experience of freedom and powerful connection? Would you like a positive, effortless change in your life? Then come to CosmicFusion.com, where we offer the most advanced energy clearing and expansion techniques in the world with a quantum vortex energy to activate your divine blueprint and life's purpose. When your soul leads the way with cosmic fusion and quantum vortex energy, you can break clear of past difficulties and blocks with the power of the source. With cosmic fusion, the source energy does the work for you. It's easy and effortless. Listen to our free meditation right from our Cosmic Fusion website, the Cosmic Code Meditation. Sign up for one of our interactive webinars today. Come to Cosmic Fusion, www.kosmicfusion.com to experience an effortless awakening and transformation. Are you ready for an upgrade? Are you ready for a new experience of living in the fifth dimensional magic and powerful connection? Then visit CosmicFusion.com today. CosmicFusion.com Your property tax bill. Have you seen it lately? It's frightening. Your property taxes are going up while your home value is going down. It's time to fight back and win. For the real truth about the property tax system, get Attorney Pat Quintilian's book, are you getting screwed on your property taxes? How to find out and how to fix it. Attorney Quintilian answers all your questions and gives you the facts you need to fight a property tax bill that is spiraling out of control. You'll also read about what happens to property owners who don't check their property records, only to find out too late they're taxed on square footage, fixtures, and even buildings that they don't own. Is this happening to you? Learn your rights. Buy Attorney Pat Quintilian's book today. Are you getting screwed on your property taxes? How to find out and how to fix it. Available on Amazon.com. Are you frustrated with endless mantras, affirmations, and processes that promise to align your life with your dreams only to find yourself years later in the same space where you began? Do you feel like you must be doing something wrong because nothing seems to be working? Don't you just wish that someone could shift your consciousness for you and your life could align with your desires without all the effort? Well, your wish is about to come true. Hi, I'm Carrie Cannon, and I have a gift that allows me to align the consciousness of others to be in harmony with their dreams. The best part is, it requires no particular effort on your part. Upon listening to a consciousness alignment, people have reported instant energy shifts, financial windfalls, soulmate connections, healed relationships, physical healings, and more. To gain access to a free trial offer for my entire Manifesting Miracles Library of Consciousness Alignments, go to commandmiracles.com now for details. Again, that's commandmiracles.com for information about our free trial offer. That's commandmiracles.com. Ooh. 
Welcome back, everyone, to Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host, Patricia Baker. I am here tonight with my co-host, George Lugo. George, again, thanks so much for joining me as a co-host tonight. This has just been a great show with you and our wonderful guest, Tomas Frauer. And I, again, want you to announce your website because... Look, everybody, this guy right here, George Lugo, he is the best medium we, that I know in the world. He's fantastic. He's worked with Scotland Yard on cases. He is, he's, he's just amazing. So, George, tell people how they can get a hold of you. Well, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, it's crystalgatereadings.com, or it can be reached at george at crystalgatereadings.com, or you can, you can call me. I'll give you my phone number. It is um, 505-819-7249. And those are basically the ways that you can get a hold of me directly. Thank you. And you're welcome, and thank you. And I just want to let everybody know, look, George gets booked up like a lot of, you know, he's just booked up months in advance sometimes. But don't give up because it's it's worth the wait. He is incredible at what he does. And I, I don't say that lightly. So tonight we are having, you're welcome, we are having just an incredible conversation. I'm enjoying it so much. I know you are too. This is terrific. We are speaking with the author of a new book that we highly recommend to you because it's excellent, full of great information, and it's, it's just so interesting. The name of the book is Morbid Magic, it's Death, Spirituality, and Culture from Around the World, and it is written by our guest. And he's a scholar in a lot of fields. I can tell you that. Very bright, bright man. He's done a lot with his life already. It's very inspiring to hear from him. And his name is Tomas Prowart. Tomas, where are we going to go next with this? There's just so much to talk about. There is. I mean, there, there's a whole world awaiting us out there. But, <laughs> oh, God. There's, yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff. I remember one that always gets talked about. I know that when, you know, people call to me and it's like, oh, you you talking right about death? Well, what about voodoo and, you know, santeria and all those and zombies? You know, you get that a <laughs> lot, too. And, it, and everyone's just like, why is why are they so creepy? Why, why are voodoo people obsessed with, you know, death? Why is all that happening? And, you know, it's – and, of course, the, the answer makes sense. But the sensationalism of it, you know, you watch the movie White Zombie. You watch, you know, the James Bond live and let die, and it's just this – weird, fascinating, magical thing surrounded without death. But is it really? Yeah, it right. is, but not in the way you think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And and there are people that say they have seen death and they have talked to death and it's an energy that is here to do its own job. So have you come across people like that who have had an experience of, of talking to death? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. When you write for Llewellyn and you attend all the conventions, you, you definitely meet a lot of people who have their own kind of psychic and supernatural phenomena that they experience. And, and it's fascinating because it's the, the one super fascinating thing is that a lot of the stories are kind of very similar, which has on one hand have you think, you know, is this conspiracy? Is people just kind of leeching on each other's experiences? Or is mm-hmm. the truth just kind of universal in a way where when you tap into it, you know, if, if the answer is blue, then the answer is blue. That's what you see. You know, it's, if you say yellow, then it's not the truth. So right. it, it, it's fascinating to see how much similarity there is actually amongst people who 
to have had in that kind of contact. And what are the similarities that you've you've heard? A lot of the similarities I've heard generally revolve around it being kind of like a good place. Well, first of all, mm-hmm. that it is a place and that, you know, it's not just, you know, dark oblivion that awaits you or some horrible, horrible punishing. But it's usually it's usually something nice. It's usually bright. And it's usually very kind of calming and peaceful. A lot of people say that, and it's so much said that it becomes such this cliche where it's just like, well, of course, of course, you know. But, mm-hmm. you know, from the people who say they've seen it, that's 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 what I've heard most. And it's, it's weird that I hear it so much. Yeah, exactly. Well, I had an experience with death I'd like to share with you. Um, it's It happened about, oh, God, 10 years ago, and we had two dogs that were older, and Zoe, my great Pyrenees, passed away, and then I had a dream where death came to me and said, I'm, I'm going to have to take Micah, too. And I said, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> I said, I can't take it. I said, I, I'm not even over Zoe's death. Now you tell me you're going to take Micah, too. Uh-uh. No. And so he said, all right. And Micah lived for another, oh, I guess three and a half, four months which is great because he was 16 and a half years old. And when he passed, I was very grateful that death gave me those extra months with him. So that was my experience. And I, it really felt like I was talking to the entity, you know, this, that death was an entity and he was listening to me because, again, it was this conversation that went on and it felt very, very real. And, again, I was very, very grateful that that he gave me this. And it felt like a male energy. I don't know if other people have described that to you and if they've had conversations. But that's how it felt to me. And I did meet another person who was a friend of mine who uh, was going through a real health crisis when she was very young. She was only I think, 20, 19 or 20 years old. And she said mm-hmm. death came to her hospital door. But um, she knew through the, the interaction with, with him that she was not going to be taken at that time. And she recovered miraculously. So I, I was just wondering if you had had other wow. conversations with people where they had had these experiences. There was a real interaction with the energy or the entity of death, however you want to frame it. But anyways, those are the two I know about. And I thought they were very interesting. Maybe this could be another book. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, way to go. Yeah. Way, way. Way to way to tell death what to do. I like that. That that's, <laughs> that that's that's really showing some that when when someone death comes to someone and they say no, wait, hold on, you're like, Oh, this person's serious, I'll give it to them. You know, yeah. that's kudos yeah. to you for that. Believe me. Yeah. So Yeah, there was a that um she was in her fifties and she was in a um traffic accident and she died. And mm. um and now, this woman was born in the deep south. I mean, deep south. She was born in a motel. Her family owned it. It was one of these little side roads that everybody forgot about in, in time. And that's where she grew up. She was uneducated, um, didn't know much about anything. And she was telling me that when she died, she woke up in her death, and like on the other side, I guess, and she said she was standing in flames. There were just flames oh, all wow. around her. And I had never heard of that before. And I thought, wow, of all the people wow. telling me stuff, that's a new one. So yeah. she came back with the nurse. And then uh, 25 years later, 
she fell off a building and died again. And this time she was standing in flames again. And and then and then she came back and she just says, What does that mean? You know, I said, Man, I don't know, but I don't want to go there you know. And but you know, and and I kept thinking, is it because she was raised Baptist and you know, did did religion have something to do with it or but that's what she said. She says, I was standing in flames both times. And I just thought, geez, I don't know her background. I don't know much about her, but I don't know if you have anything like that. Wow. Yeah. I've I've never heard anything like that. Wow, that's but I I do and think she, I do think you're right. I think that you the cultural context of how you kind of visualize death and see death, I think that mm-hmm. probably does have some sort of Effect even if what you experience is different, when you come back to you know this plane of reality, you have to communicate right. it through the senses in ways that you can understand in this world, and and that's just how they communicate it. Maybe it was warm, maybe it was just really warm, you know, like the tropics, and it just <laughs> interpreted it as fire. Like who knows? But I've yeah. that's something special. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she said that's really That's all she could see were flames all around her, and that's it. I just thought, boy, and and you could tell that she was being very innocent about it. You know, it's just right. I, yeah, it was quite something. That yeah. is fascinating. Gosh, well, Tomas, how about some of the other cultures that you've written about in your book, uh, like Japan, for example? What did you find interesting about Japan? Oh Lord, Japan! You know, Japan's really interesting. And I say that I say that about everyone, but it's true. It's true. They're all real interesting. Yeah, but Japan's is. real Japan's real special because they have a real sense of reverence for death and death in the dying process, too, because um, they have this ceremony, which I don't speak Japanese, but I think it's Kotsue or something similar to that, something similar to that. Um, but it's when they – Japan's pretty much all cremation. Um, Buddhists themselves are pretty much all cremation. And when they do get cremated, okay, what happens here in the U.S. first, when you get cremated is you go into the retort, which is the technical term for the oven. You get burned up, but your your bones kind of remain. You don't just turn to ash. You get your bones survive. Um, they're, oh. they're gnarled and messed up, but it's still there. You have skeletal fragments like the femur or the big bones. And what the mm-hmm. crematory attendant does is takes this big, long metal rake, pulls all your bones out, puts it into a giant blender, which has the awesome name of a cremulator, um, grinds up your bones because it's illegal to return bones to a family in the United States, and mm-hmm. so where it's this unrecognizable powder that you know, people <clears throat> call ashes, but really it's just ground mm-hmm. up bone. Oh. They don't do that in Japan. No, what they do is after the cremation, they pull the body out, to where the skeletal frame is still intact or whatever's left of it. And they take these long metal chopsticks and, you know, from the feet all the way up to the head, they put it in an urn, piece by piece. And the entire family gets together and shares and puts mom, dad, grandma, grandpa back together into this urn, piece by piece. And they're there seeing, you know, the relative skeleton. They're interacting with it. They're helping each other with it. It becomes this real big grieving process for them. And then they have the bones intact in the urn um, when they're done. 
so it's 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 beautiful and it's you know it's done with all the same austereness as you know in the Japanese tea ceremony. It's very quiet and it's it's beautiful really. It's very beautiful and we it's it's a very Japanese thing. That's incredible. Now these urns must be fairly large in size then to accommodate long bones. They do, they do. They're fairly they're fairly big. Um well a lot of times too in cremations is the bones are intact, but they're still kind of brittle. So if the chopsticks oh. are metal and you kind of like pinch hard enough, you can kind of break it a little bit and kind of get mm-hmm. more manage- manageable pieces, you know, fun-sized mm-hmm. little bones. So it's easier, but it's definitely a <laughs> larger urn than, um, you know, the standard urn you see here in the United States. Right. Now, when they're, when they're completed, when they complete the process, then I know here in the United States, what they do is they sometimes will take the urn and spread the ashes wherever was whatever and wherever was special to the person. What about in Japan? What do they do then next? They don't really do it. They they really keep it. Um, one thing that's really popular um, in Japan now that technology is happening is that they kind of get stored in um, a columbarium, which is a is kind of like a mortuary or a cemetery for urns where it's kind of like a bookshelf and everyone has their own compartment and you can put the oh. urn in there. Yeah. And it, mm-hmm. it's very, it's very digital. If you know, if you put mom and dad's urn in a very nice place, you can go in with gated security. You're in this giant cylindrical column surrounded by images of the Buddha, all surrounded by blue neon in a dark room. You put your keypad into this machine and then suddenly only your parents' urn is lit up with the neon in the Buddha and then the mechanically goes down to your level, wherever it is in the giant cylinder room, straight to, you know, face-to-face, and you can interact with mom and dad that way. It's very 21st wow. century. It's very technological. <laughs> but it's beautiful. It's beautiful and it's yeah, fascinating. And it's, it's, you know, it's something a lot of people aren't doing because, you know, a lot of people don't want to build these giant buildings dedicated to death. Um, right. So they just – but also it's very disrespectful – after you've gone through that, you know, Kotsube ceremony to just, let me just toss mom and dad out of this urn. You know, to them, that's right. just, <laughs> you don't do that. Exactly. So that's, yeah, that's you got to store it in a yeah. place of honor. That's amazing. I'll leave it to the Japanese to come up with this incredible way of storing the, the, uh, the urns and then interacting. That's amazing. Wow. And now yeah. other other cultures uh, are also not in favor of of the crematorium type style of disposing of the body. But what what are some of the other interesting things that people are doing? I know you, you also wrote about Tibet, right? In the book, was did I see Tibet in there? Right. Um, one thing that's really popular in Tibet is the sky burial, which sounds beautiful, and it is, but beautiful in a different sense. Um, because if you live in the you know the high Himalayas, it's there's not much there's not very much wood to burn a body, and also mm-hmm. the wood there is valuable. So and the ground is so hard, you can't really bury a body. So what are you going to do with it? What you do is you kind of yeah. like tenderize it a bit, you know, beat it a little bit, um, put these little spices on it, and then leave it out in the open air so that vultures can come and pick at it and bite off scraps, and then when they're done, they fly away. And that's the sky. Wow. It's your body being consumed by animals and flying to different parts of the land, different parts of the world, 
maybe you'll get a piece of you will get dropped along the way. Maybe you'll, you know, you are what you eat. So you become one with the animal, the vulture. Um, you get spread out like how seeds get spread out around the land. And it's this beautiful separation in a very practical way of how to deal with death in a very, very religious way too. So it it also happens in Mongolia, but less so. But it's this beautiful Tibetan sky burial. That's it's that obviously illegal in many places, but not there. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Gosh, and now let's talk a little bit about Egypt because Egypt. I mean, we all have heard the stories of the bombing, and tell us what you know about Egypt. Oh, yes. Fun fact, actually, in mortuary school, um, you have to learn about the history of mummification because it's very self-important that the mortuary industry ties what it does back to the Egyptians because it gives a sense of, you know, spirituality and dignity. And really what we do is very different, but it's always interesting that when you go to mortuary school, you have to learn about Egyptian mummification. But um, with it, it's I mean, we all know about the mummies that last. It's this entire chemical process of just removing the organs, um, preserving the body with special gums, special spices, kind of preservatives nowadays, wrapping Mm -hmm. it all up in stain. But that's important because your body has to stay intact because the way the, the Egyptian concept of the soul is very different and a very kind of, simplistic way of speaking about it in the sense of death is there's two parts of the soul. There's more, but for our purposes, there's two. There's the ka and the ba. And which one is which is kind of slipping my mind right now. But um, one of them is the ethereal soul that kind of goes off into the ether in the next world. One of them stays with the body. And so if your body decomposes, then that part of your soul is gone forever. The goal is to have both parts of those soul reunite in the afterlife so you can, you know, enjoy the afterlife. If a piece Mm -hmm. of you is missing, you're gone forever. So it's really important in the Egyptian culture to make sure that your body survives and thus, you know, mummification became a thing. And it was just, it took off. Obviously, there's, you know, more reputable people who can make your body last longer. There are people who can do it cheap and easy and quick and, you know, hopefully it'll last. But right. it's, it's just right. utmost importance to make sure that that body is still intact because decomposition is your death, both spiritually mm-hmm. and literally. And That's amazing. And, yeah. It's just incredible. Now, they were big on taking out part of the brain but not all of the brain, as I recall from your book. What part of the brain did they leave? Um, it's it, it's tricky because the the modern understand not the modern the popular understanding you know from all the media and I think one of the how the Greeks wrote about it where they kind of put a hook up your brain through, through your nose mm-hmm. kind of pull out a piece. Yeah. Modern scholars don't really think that happens much anymore. What they think really happened mm-hmm. is that they kind of inject chemicals that kind of dissolve the brain, mm-hmm. and so it's this kind of like flush and then. What the embalmers would do is they would turn you over on your stomach so that all your brain juices would just flow through the nasal cavity and drip out as this, like, horrific, bloody nose, um, liquid mess. And that's your brain. But, Uh um, yeah, your organs had to be (laughs) – a lot of your other organs were preserved in canopic jars. Um, They all had their own – each protector of each organ 
And it's really, if you look at it practically from the mortuary standpoint, it's all the big ones that kind of facilitate comp- decomposition. It's all the ones that add oh, moisture. It's okay. all the ones that involve bacteria growing. Because when you when you die, the bacteria in your body is still living. And it's no longer receiving the food it needs. So it panics. It's like, uh-oh, emergency mode, emergency mode. So they start kind of like eating other things and building up gases and doing all the stuff that results in decomposition because it needs to eat to survive and you're not giving it food. So things that are wet, things that are fatty really help that. So I think they removed all the big important ones because that kind of left open room in the body to air Mm -hmm. it out and make sure all that moisture goes away and make sure decomposition is slowed down. And if you get autopsied, all your organs are actually removed anyway, including your brain, put in a red plastic bag and put back in your chest cavity and sewn up. So anyone who's had an autopsy doesn't have their organs. It's all in a plastic bag in their body. Yeah, That's really gross. And uh, I've heard, you know, it's it's interesting that you bring this up about autopsy because, I, I mean, I know it's sometimes necessary to determine a cause of death, and I think it's required by law, isn't it, if they don't know, obviously, the cause of death and they have to do an autopsy? Is that true? It, it is true. Technically, there's a, the way autopsies work is if, if you die and you kind of weren't expecting to die, so if you weren't old, you haven't been seen a doctor, if, you know, you're under 18, then you automatically get an autopsy. And it's, it's, it's very promoted by law because of the fear is that, you could say you have this super, you know, really conservative of the body religious belief. You know, let's say you murdered mom and dad, but you know, you, you are of this religion, so hey, no autopsy can be done. It's our religious belief. You'll never know. So the law is kind yeah. of like, well, this is kind of like that one case where your religious beliefs do not supersede the law because maybe you killed them. Mhm. Mhm. But wow, there's so much yeah. to this. Oh my Thank goodness. You. Tomas, I have a question for you. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's Chinese. Have you ever been around the bodies that were rubberized? You know, it's like this. I forget what it's actually called, but I've been to like museums just with a ton of people, even animals, and they've all been like rubberized. And it's just I've seen it in New York, and and I forget what. Yes, it's yes, the bodies exhibit. You're talking about that one where you can see the insides and the muscular you and see, the. Yeah. Everything you see, everything—it's amazing, and it's actually they—they they somehow they, it's a process where they mummify them, but it's through some kind of—I don't—I don't know how they do it exactly, but they're whole. You know, all these people are whole. Have you ever seen those, or know how to do that? Um, I've seen them because I've been to the exhibits. I—I yeah. I don't know the specific ways for how to do it, but I know that if you are in the industry. You know that it is possible. It's not. It's kind of like not as amazing because you kind of know the inside secrets. It's like, oh, they probably just did this, this, this. You don't know. Right. But they yeah. preserved it. One thing I will say about that, which, you know, is a fun fact, is that a lot of those bodies are not obtained legally. Um, right. There's oh. a whole Chinese trade of – because if you look at them, if you look at them very closely and if you've, you know, done, you know, muscular anatomy, bone anatomy – um, anthropology, you know, you have to take mortuary classes, um, you notice that they're all almost Chinese bodies um, mm-hmm. of the Han wow. race in China. Yeah. 
And there are actually a lot of um, political um, people who disappeared in China. There are people who were executed mysteriously, and then they're sold to these body um, exhibits and set off around the world to make a profit. In fact, the bodies exhibit, yeah, the bodies exhibit was actually confronted about this because um, they thought it was unethical, and they were, and their answer was, maybe, but people are enjoying it, so who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it is fascinating. And in fact, if you go to Latin American cultures, a big thing is too is to have kind of like fun funerals where you are embalmed uh-huh. in a certain position. Some people are embalmed, you know, sitting up, and then they're wearing a hat and dark sunglasses and a wig, and they're right there at a dinner table, <laughs> or they're embalmed in a position where they're seated on a motorcycle, and then they're at their funeral on their motorcycle in their motorcycle gear. It's 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 fascinating because it's it's. It's more fun. It's that ultimate way of, you know, that celebration of life where this is mom and dad. Let's have them embalmed in a position. And it's there's many ways and technical things you can do when you embalm. So it's a lot more laborious to do it, but it is very mm-hmm. possible to just embalm certain parts of the body only, embalm them in certain positions. It's just not usually asked for. So right. that bodies exhibit, yeah, it, it's definitely doable, but it is so amazing to see what you look like inside. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Oh my goodness! Now, what other cultures did you talk about? I'm trying to remember. You talked about the uh, the culture in Greece, and what do Greek Greek people do? What's different about that? In Greece, Greece has this kind of like sign of the times um, burials where it things go in and out of fashion because originally people were just buried, you know, you just buried in ancient Greece. But then, you know, Homer started writing all these stories where these grand heroes were cremated in a giant pyre and it was beautiful and it was honorific. So suddenly everyone wants to die, you know, like they're great heroes in these stories. So then everyone started being cremated. And then that started happening and then that became too overblown, and then, you know, the aristocrats were doing it. So then the normal people kind of separated by saying, oh, well, we bury. And it became this whole political statement. It was it, It's really fascinating. And then Rome got involved, and they wanted to do all the cremations because it made them look like the intellectual, super-refined Greeks. And then they passed it on to the people that they conquered. And the people that they conquered had their own burials, which then Rome started doing. And it really how you interact with different cultures around the world, everyone, um, everyone kind of picks and borrows at what they do. But usually around the world, you're usually buried or you're usually burned in a fire. It's very universal like that. Even even before, um, you know, colonization, when Europe really took hold, it's amazing to see how much fire and dirt there was. It, as a As a human race, it's what we did. Mm-hmm. Right. And what about the Viking I, funerals? Is, is that where they set people on, you know, into water on fire? You just burned them up that's that what way? They, I do, and that's what they do in the movies because it looks super cool. But, um, yeah. It, it, does, it, it, it bursts everyone's bubble, you know, the unfun police here. That's not what really <laughs> happened. Because if you, oh, if you look no. at it, like, okay. from the mortuary technical standpoint, you're set out on this boat, right, you push down to the fjord, Arrows of fire are shot, 
and you're burned and it's beautiful and you're gone. It doesn't happen like right. that because the body needs extreme high temperatures, extreme temperatures to cremate properly. And then mm-hmm. when you're on a boat that's on water that's rapidly burning and sinking into the water, you don't have A, that much heat, B, that much time. So what you would have got was this weird, nasty, boogeyman, charred corpse that just kind of ends up being floating in the water and probably floating back on the shore. That's probably not the most honorific thing that people would have done to their chiefs and important people. (laughs) Right. But um, what they were what they, what was happening is there was a lot of um you were buried with your longboat and you can look online there's all these excavations of you know unearthed intact longboats from the era. Um, but the biggest fear among you know Viking cultures was it was a very war society and the best thing you can do was to die in battle because that signified you know to the gods to send the Valkyries down and get you and bring you back into Valhalla as a fellow warrior who fell in combat. But what if there's no war? What if there's unfortunately times of peace? And, you know, you're getting old. There's no war to fight. You're not going to go out and murder someone. So what's a guy to do? What happened in, you know, Scandinavian cultures is that on their deathbed, when you know you're absolutely dying, is that they would take battle axes and different things and kind of like put dents in them and then cut themselves and hurt themselves and hit themselves so that when they died and the Valkyries come, it's like, ah, this person did die in battle. Look at the look at the battle wounds all over them. They need to go to Valhalla. So there was a lot of, you know, masochistic self cutting going on and self beating to kind of fool the gods into thinking that they died in battle. So wow. it, was, it was very what a belief to yeah. have. Jeez. In fact actually um the Aztecs had a very similar thing where where you went after death was wholly determined not on if you're a good person, not if you're wealthy, not if you're bad, but the manner in which you died. So you could be a good person, die this way, horrible afterlife. Bad person, oh, but you died this way, congratulations, you get a heaven-like afterlife. And what was so the difference in the way they died? I, they were another very warlike society, so the best way to die was, again, in battle. But mm-hmm. um, women women had a little edge over the Aztec women had an edge over the you know Viking women because another battlefield was giving birth. So if you died uh, in childbirth or complications from childbirth, you were seen as a warrior. So you that was a warrior's death too. Could that have been a cultural reason to kind of make sure that you know fertile women keep having lots of babies because that increased their chances of women dying in childbirth? Possibly, possibly. Yeah. But Yep. Dying in childbirth was a woman's dream way to go if you were a female. Um, hmm. you, get, you get kind of like an okay afterlife if you died from like a watery death. So if a storm happened, lightning, you drowned, um, you know, waterborne diseases, then you kind of went to an okay afterlife. It wasn't the best, but it wasn't awful. But the worst afterlife was if you died as just, you know, a regular person. Nothing special about you. You weren't glorious in battle. You didn't give birth to a child. You didn't drown. So you get this awful afterlife you now have to deal with. And, of course, that freaked people out. No no one wants to go to this hellish place just for existing. So that kind of encouraged people to become warriors. It increased your chances of dying in battle, having more children, because it increased your chances of dying in childbirth. 
But one really yeah. fascinating thing that the Aztecs had was that what about the people who were born different, people who did not have the mental or physical capacities to go to war? Um, mm-hmm. They were given automatic pass into the waterborne death world. They thought, okay, this person had sort of mental defects upon birth. They never had a fair shot. They don't deserve to go into an awful afterlife. They get a free pass. This person was born with a horrible deformity. They couldn't swing a battle axe. They weren't having children. They automatically get a pass. And I thought that was really nice, actually. That's very compassionate. Yeah, it was very very surprisingly compassionate in the Aztec culture. So, but again, it just shows that the concept of death and afterlife, is it your morality? Is it the manner in which you die? Is it what you're thinking upon death? Is it your soul? Is it your actions? Or is it, you know, what you just feel and believe in as perhaps what's going to happen? It's fascinating how many different ways we conceive of what's in the next beyond. Yeah, that is amazing. Oh, my God, so many so many things to think about. It really does expand your consciousness to consider everything that you're writing about here in this in this book that's so fascinating. Oh, my gosh. Well, again, everybody, you need to get this book because it's cool. It is called Morbid Magic, Death, Spirituality, and Culture from Around the World, and it's by our tremendous guest tonight, Tomas Brower. Uh, Tomas, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is great. Really, really interesting, <laughs> exciting, informative, and you're just a great guest and a great writer. And, and we hope you'll come back with your next book, whatever it may be, because this has been wonderful. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Thank you, Tomas. It's wonderful. Thank you. Oh, thanks. I'm, I, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, we Cheers. can't wait to have you back. And we may have to have you come back and, and talk about Santa La Muerte. I mean, that's that's another book that you wrote. And we probably should just schedule that. So, look, everybody, <laughs> we're going to be back next week, I can tell you, with another great show. And we're going to have Tomas back. We'll let you know when. And until next week. We'll see you on the Blue Highway. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with Supernatural Girls. Thanks so much. Oh, yeah. No worries. Yeah, it was great. Really fun listening. You described it perfectly. Yeah. I'm glad. I hope your uh, your audience likes it. And if you – this this goes out like in syndication and like a podcast where I can share it with different people and and get the word out? Yeah, the same link uh, that was on Facebook today, that's the archive link. So you can definitely use that. And if you can't find it, I'll just send you another link copy to your email, and then you can paste it. You can paste it along with our um, little icon if you want to. 
But this has been a great show, and and I think people will really enjoy it. They didn't get to hear it live. They'll they'll be able to hear it in the archive. And we go everywhere. We're we're on iHeart and Spreaker and Stitcher and all those places. Uh, We turn everywhere. Yeah. So, but this is great, great information. You're a terrific writer. Really enjoyed the book. It was good. Yeah. Thank thank you. you. I flattery does get you everywhere, and I do really appreciate it. It's um, well, I, I, and I love your stories about La Santa Muerte. It was just incredible to hear both sides of that coin. So I think that's a, mm-hmm. another book we need to have you back to discuss. <laughs> I mean, let's schedule it and make it happen, and we'll be doing this again. Definitely, definitely. And George, yeah. thanks again. Oh yeah, man! Thank you. I, I had a great time. Really great time. All right. Just really great. Yeah. Yeah, really. Oh. You need a break from that once in a while. <laughs> okay, guys, talk soon, and we'll schedule that next show. Okay, good. Thanks. Okay, care. Yeah. Bye. Bye.